Welcome to In the Demo, a show about the stories that get told about groups, how those stories got made, what we think those stories get wrong, and why it matters. You hosts, Farah Bostic is the founder and head of research and strategy of The Difference Engine, a strategic insights consultancy focused on helping business leaders make decisions. Adam Piano, author and brand consultant and managing director of brand strategy at Arizona State University. You are now in the demo. I'm Adam Pierno, Generation X. I'm Farah Bostic, I guess fine, Generation X, whatever. You're owning it and I'm proud of you. I salute I'm you, it. Farah. I'm owning it, but in a Gen X kind of way. Yeah, right. It's very meh. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm unimpressed with myself. <laughs> that actually <laughs> dovetails a little bit into today's conversation because <laughs> we have a, an amazing guest, an amazing topic, and I'm trying to remember the path that brought us to talk to our guest today. Do you want to do you want to talk more about who you got to sit down with? Yeah. So it's interesting thinking about the path. I think the path was noticing a giant gaping hole in the narrative because we had been talking about all the kind of adulting parts of the heel turn story of like, okay, this next greatest generation is not performing as we expected them to. And one of the ways they weren't performing or two of the ways they weren't performing was they weren't getting married soon enough and they weren't having kids soon enough and not enough kids, I guess, maybe. Got to get to that 2.3. Totally, totally. That's you want you want two percent inflation. <laughs> you want <laughs> you want two point three kids. <laughs> the math is very well documented. It only right. works if we keep doing the same thing. Yes. We arbitrarily decided this some time ago, and so now because tradition, they're underperforming. Well, no, that's not exactly it. I think there's a lot of boomers that have their wealth staked to that equation continuing. And if that number dips and their their portfolio only grows at 6% (laughs) instead of 5% annually compounded, that is a problem. Well, their their wealth and their retirement security um, for those who don't have wealth, which are actually most boomers. But yes. So sure. And so like we were talking about it one day and I was like, you know, nobody ever like, where's the part about millennials like forming relationships it's sort of like (laughs) the underpants gnomes right it's like collect underpants (laughs) profit like it's like have have millennials they procreate but like there's a whole bunch of stuff that happens in the middle before people get married and have children and one of the things is not just like economic stability it's also meeting partners and forming relationships and i don't know having sex i mean that's still the dominant method of producing offspring. So, so far. <laughs> so far. We'll see. We'll see how that goes. And so because we were talking about that, the person who immediately popped into mind is a friend of mine, Cindy Gallup, who is the founder and CEO of a social sex platform called Make Love Not Porn.tv. And that she might have something to say about that because it is foundationally about real world sex, which she talks about as trying to kind of spark this social sex revolution. And she was looking at a generation of people who put everything else about their lives online to share with others. And so why not their sexuality and their sex lives? Mm-hmm. And so the but the idea being it's the opposite of porn, right? If, if porn is scripted, real world sex is not. And the idea was just years and years of kind of the 
you know, lots and lots of cultural hand-wringing and moral panics, but also documented negative effects of young people being exposed to traditional pornography, and that there was an alternative. It was sort of teaching people frankly, bad sexual manners, but also not really helping them understand what mattered to them in terms of intimacy um, and in terms of their own kind of self-confidence and, and their sense of them, their own bodies. So that's what she kind of specializes in. And I thought she's in a perfect position to see literally what people are doing and what they're talking about and sharing and might have some insight into millennial intimacy and sexual relationships. Yeah, her insights into obviously her experience with kind of documenting that and her understanding of the comparison and creating a video archive of the comparison of real world sex and and pornography uh, blows my mind that somebody would how how when she tells the story of how she got there is it's really interesting. The insights she has about intimacy and relationships and then the breakdown of the family. To me, the way the media tells the story, it's counterintuitive to family building because Mm -hmm. sex is put over here in this taboo corner, but families are put over here in like this front and center. And so the, the two shouldn't be related, but obviously you can't have one without the other. So her insights around the breakdown in intimacy, connection, relationships, the unintended consequences Mm -hmm. of uh, a generation raised on like f- learning sex and intimacy through video on a tiny screen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just just really interesting. You know, she has, obviously she talks about it in the interview, but firsthand experience <laughs> um, dating younger people who have, have these porn informed ideas about what sex and intimacy look like. Mm-hmm. And so haven't really interrogated what they're interested in. And so as you start to form relationships, and, and the other thing we did in preparation for this conversation was we asked some millennials about their own kind of experiences and perceptions around sex relationships and intimacy. And one of the things we heard a lot was about this kind of almost rite of passage of having to get through some bad relationships, some bad sex, <laughs> And I don't even mean that actually in a joking way, like some some relationships founded on two people who don't really know what they want, but are doing what they think they're supposed to want. Right. And that is not a recipe for genuine human connection. And so it, it doesn't help in forming romantic bonds that might turn into long-term relationships or or couples that want to parent together, for example. Totally. And so like it, it really is an important point in the development of anybody is is that kind of sexual awakening and developing sexual relationships, discovering what you like sexually before you can start moving on to any of the rest of it. Yep. And then there's also just the part about like modeling for your kids. One of the other things we heard in some of those Vox Pops was people talking about their sexual romantic and kind of intimate relationships being a reaction to what they saw from their parents who were divorced and dating or who were not good at articulating what good manners in bed are or what, you know, mm-hmm. what what makes for meaningful intimacy as opposed to just being naked together. That's not really that intimate. It's a whole different thing. Um, and so it just seemed like an interesting opportunity to get into that. And so this is actually, I think we should probably also set up, this is like a three-parter in a way. We're talking to Cindy about the social sex versus porn part of it. And then we're going to talk to somebody else um, in a later episode about online dating. And then there are a bunch of other things that we've been looking at around um, sex, pornography, romance, dating, et cetera, that we're going to kind of recap around in a conversation between us. Excellent. Let's get right to it. I'm Cindy Gallup. 
I'm 63 years old. So that makes me the tail end of baby boomers and a child of the 60s. Although when people say that, they normally mean that they were adult in the 60s. So I I was literally a child in the 60s. (laughs) And I am the founder and CEO of Make Love Not Porn. We are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. And I know this story, other people might know this story, but maybe talk a bit about what sparked your drive to do Make Love Not Porn. Sure. So Make Love Not Porn was a complete and total accident because I never consciously intentionally set out to do anything that I very bizarrely find myself doing now. Um, (laughs) So it came about through my direct personal experience dating younger men. Um, The men I date tend to be in their 20s. And so I date millennial and Gen Z. And I realized 15 years ago through dating and having sex with younger men that when we don't talk openly and honestly about sex in the real world, porn becomes sex education by default in not a good way. And bear in mind, you know, this was me experiencing this 15 years ago when nobody was writing about this. No one was talking about it. And as a naturally action-oriented person, I went, I'm going to do something about this. So 14 years ago, I put up on no money a tiny clunky website at makelovenotporn.com that in its original iteration was just words. The construct was porn world versus real world. Here's what happens in the porn world. Here's what really happens in the real world. I launched at TED in 2009. I became the only TED speaker to say the words come on my face on the TED stage six times in succession. The talk went viral as a result. And it drove this extraordinary global response to my tiny website that I had never anticipated. Thousands of people wrote to me from every single country in the world, young and old, male and female, straight and gay, pouring their hearts out, telling me things about their sex lives and their porn watching habits they'd never told anyone before. And I realized I'd uncovered a huge global social issue. And so I then felt I had a personal responsibility to take Make Love Not Porn forwards in a way that would make it much more far-reaching, helpful, and effective. And so I turned it into a business designed to do good and make money simultaneously. Today, we are the world's first and only user-generated, 100% human-curated social sex video sharing platform. So we're kind of what Facebook would be if it allowed you to socially, sexually self-express, which it clearly doesn't. The way to think about us is, if porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie, Make Love Not Porn is the badly needed documentary. We are a unique window onto the funny, messy, loving, wonderful, comical, awkward ways we all have sex in the real world. We are socializing and normalizing sex, bringing it out of the shadows into the sunlight to promote consent, communication, good sexual values, and good sexual behavior. We are literally sex education through real world demonstration. And I foresaw the creator economy 14 years ago when I designed Make Love Not Porn around a revenue sharing business model to democratize access to income. So our members pay to subscribe, rent and stream social sex videos. Half the income goes to our contributors who we call our Make Love Not Porn stars. We are spearheading what we call the social sex revolution. The revolutionary part is not the sex. It's the fact we're finally making it social. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that, I think, you know, if you look at the 
trajectory of well not even trajectory the the kind of themes that come up when you look up literally you know google millennials and sex or something and you get a lot about dating apps you get a lot about pornography on the internet you get a lot about you know dick pics and hookup culture and ghosting and sexting and those kinds of things so it might be easy to think like well social and sex has been going together for a while but not in the sense that you mean it so so like draw the distinction between the type of social sex that was happening and what you're trying to trying to create so literally what i realized you know, when, when I first concept of Make Love Not Born 14 years ago, and what I said in my TED talk, and what I've been emphasizing ever since is, the issue isn't porn, the issue is we don't talk about sex in the real world. And so Make Love Not Porn's mission is to make it easier for every single person in the world to talk openly and honestly about sex. And so what I decided to do very simply was to take every dynamic in social media and apply them to this one area of universal human experience that no other social network or platform will allow. And so when I say that we are creating a whole new category, social sex, what I mean by that is that we are, we are enabling people to spontaneously share videos of the sex they have in the real world in the same way that all of us on social spontaneously share videos of every other area of our lives. And the interesting thing is that both our members and our Make Love Not Porn stars tell us that being able to view social sex, socially sharing their real world sex, is as transformative for them and their relationships as socially sharing everything else has been for the world at large. And, you know, to give you some idea of, you know, the, the huge gap and market opportunity that we are filling, the fact of the matter is that everybody has always wanted, everybody wants to know what everyone else is really doing in bed. And until now, they haven't been able to find out, but now at Make Love Not Paul, we're showing them. And here are two indicators of how much the opportunity is there for us when I raise the funding I'm working on currently to scale. Because, you know, we've been bootstrapping for the past 10 years. So first of all, Pornhub at the end of every year, publishes a year in review where they do a fantastic job of taking all of their massive amounts of data and analyzing it and presenting their findings. And by the way, two very important things people to be aware of, because I have to repeat this regularly. What Pornhub is analyzing is only their data. It is not the data for the porn industry as a whole which is not findable anywhere because for all the reasons I battle on a daily basis, nobody is funding the com score of sex and porn. Okay, so Pornhub's data is only Pornhub. Um, it's not the porn industry's data and it is not real world sex data. Mm-hmm. It, 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 has, it, it does not shed light on anything that people are doing in the real world. That's what we do. I designed Make Love Not Porn to be the Kinsey of today. So um, that being said, you know, in their 2022 year in review, Pornhub identified the number one trend on their site as what they call reality. People are looking for real. And I shared that across my social channels. I said, what all of those people are looking for, though they don't know it yet, is make love, not porn. Also, very frustratingly, we are banned from advertising anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just us. It's any sex-related venture, and especially any female-led sexual health and wellness venture. You know, menstruation, menopause, fertility apps can't can't um, advertise either. So we're banned on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you know, YouTube, Snapchat, TikTok, Google, you know, every platform. But it's especially infuriating that Google will not allow us to run paid search because every day all around the world, people search for Make Love Not Porn without knowing that we exist. And what I mean by that is the top organic search terms that drive traffic to us are make love, not porn, real sex, not porn, video sexo na porno, make love, not porn, where they don't know there's a company actually called that. One young man told me that he found us when he Googled porn that is not porn because he was so fed up with everything out there, wanted something different, had no idea what to search for. When you search porn that is not porn, you find make love, not porn. That's how much the world needs and wants what we are, the documentary to porn's Hollywood movie. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a distinction across sort of ages or life stages in how much people need this. I, I don't know how else to kind of describe it. I, I've been reading um, the one book I found that tried to do kind of a survey of millennials and intimacy. And it's fascinating how gendered things still are. It's also fascinating how there's clearly like laboring under misapprehensions about what sex is, what intimacy is, what relationships are all about, how to get into one, how to get out of one, what to expect, what's normal, all of that stuff that feels to me like it's relatable at a distance but like the closer i get to it as a late gen xer the more i'm like this is not what we were dealing with <laughs> and so um yeah so what, what have you seen in your own experience and on the site so, so no, absolutely fair because first of all our core target audience and make love not porn is millennials and gen z the hmm. generations that grew up with porn need us and know they need us okay and, hmm. and by the way we are for everybody we have many older members you know but but that's our core core target and of our contributors, you know, the biggest group um, of our Make Love Not Porn stars are millennials. Mm-hmm. Um, to, and, and by the way, I will just caveat by saying that obviously we are 18 and over. And so when I say Gen Z, I'm talking about the, the older end of, of Gen Z. Right. So um, what is what is really interesting is this is um, focusing on millennials. You know, this is the generation that not only grew up with porn, but also grew up socially sharing everything. And so, you know, they are very happy to share their real world sex on Make Love Not Porn. And and in fact, you know, I use particularly what they say to us as a demonstration of how much they, they are the generation at the forefront of the social sex revolution. And what I mean by that is, so we, um, again, tiny bootstrapping have found it very challenging to raise funding over the past 10 years. So we don't have all the resources that we would like. What we've always done in a limited way is um, we've held regular Make Love Not Porn Star meetups where we invite our contributors to come and meet each other and us. You know, we, we've done that in cities around the US. We, we did that in London years ago when I and one of our curators were over there. Obviously, during the pandemic, we transitioned that to Zoom, you know, and so we've had some great remote meetups. And, you know, what is really interesting is the number of our millennial Make Love Not Porn stars who are comfortable sharing with their friends and family that they are on Make Love Not Porn. Hmm. So, so for example, we have one millennial Make Love Not Porn star couple. They're, they're, actually, they're actually based in South Africa. And the male half of the couple 
has been with us since very early on because um, he came across Make Love Not Porn and um, he submitted his first video with a wonderful video intro because we ask all our contributors to contextualize their real world sex mm. videos because real world mm. sex has context. It's a backstory, relationships, you know. So he did this wonderful intro video where he said that, you know, he grew up with porn and it completely fucked him up in terms of his attitudes towards women, his relationships, his, his, his relationship with himself. He came across Make Love Not Porn. He was blown away by the platform and the community. And he really felt that he wanted to give back. But he was single at the time, didn't have a partner. And so he thought, okay, I will make a solo masturbation video. And so he filmed himself masturbating. And this is the first time he'd ever done that. And he said, just doing this made him love himself more. Hmm. And by the way, we hear this from all of our Make Love and Porn stars, but, you know, especially um, the ones who submit masturbation, it's an incredibly intimate act that they're sharing with our community and that they get tremendous affirmation from. You know, they say it enhances their their, their sense of sexual self, you know, their sexual self-esteem. So that was fantastic. So he contributed a number of solo videos. Then he met the woman who is now his committed life partner. And, and, and so they were both on this Zoom Make Love and Porn star meetup. And so he he was recounting how, you know, some way into their relationship, he said to her, listen, there's this thing I do, you know, on a platform called Make Love Not Porn. And, you know, I wonder if you'd be interested in the idea of us making a video together. And she said, oh, my God. But but then she, 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 you know, um, joined Make Love Not Porn, you know, saw what we were all about, saw the videos, agreed. They submitted their first video together, you know, which was hugely popular. And... She just absolutely loved it. And so since then, they've submitted a ton of videos. And so um, he was saying to us, you know, and if anything, I mean, she's even more enthusiastic about Make Love Porn than I am. She tells everybody about it. She's told all our friends were on there. You know, and she said, yup, and it's so lovely. You know, the other day, a couple of them said to us, oh, we watched you guys' latest video. You're so adorable. You're so cute. You know, so, so, so they're Make Love Not Porn stars who are completely happy within their social circle, sharing that they're on Make Love Not Porn, and they're absolutely fine with their friends watching their videos. Now, um, also on this call was another, and this Make Love Not Porn star who's non-binary, um, and I'm not sure whether they're Gen Z or millennial, but they're definitely, you know, in, in that sort of mm-hmm. age range. So they said, yep, they had also shared with their friends um, all about Make Love Porn, and they told them they were on there. But their one caveat was, you know, they said, I, get, I say, absolutely go to Make Love Not Porn, but you're not allowed to watch my videos. You know, so, <laughs> so they drew the line, you know, there. But another one of our millennial Make Love Not Porn stars, she wrote a wonderful blog post for us about how she told her mother that she was a Make Love Not Porn star. And that conversation went brilliantly well. And so, you know, they, along with Gen Z, by the way, because obviously Gen Z come behind them in, in all of this, they are the generation where socially sharing every aspect of your life comes as naturally as breathing. And so this is an area of their lives that they are so happy to find a platform that is all about creating a safe and trustworthy space to, as I said, bring sex out of the shadows and into the sunlight. And they, and they absolutely lean into that and are mm. very, very comfortable, you know, sharing with us. And, and then, you know, w- within that, they're also the generation. Um, and again, Gen Z is absolutely following, um, in their footsteps in this, who are much more comfortable with fluidity, with experimentation, you know, and so th- this is the generation where 
we especially have, you know, polyamorous relationships. We have throuples, you know, we have threesomes. We have friendly threesomes, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, t- um, friendship turned into spontaneously, you know, some, something more. And, you know, th- th- that also I love because um, here's the interesting thing about what we do. Megaloporn isn't just a place where you get to see how people have sex in the real world. It is inevitably, therefore, a place where you get to see how people have designed different relationship models that make them happy in the real world. Mm. People are much more open about sex and relationships in the millennial age, from what I've seen, than older generations. But we don't necessarily hold ourselves to that as if it's a standard. It's more about being open-minded toward what others do and being tolerant of that, not judging people. Because I love the fact that we are able to inspire people to you know, look at their own relationships and think about different ways to operate them. Um, so, you know, we have a spectrum of, um, and again, you know, to, um, uh, we deliberately do not capture people's data in, in details. So, so I make this guesstimate based on observation, but, you know, I believe that this is also another millennial make love, not porn star, a woman. So in her narrative for the videos she shares, she um, explained that she and her husband have an agreement. Once a year, she is allowed to meet up with her high school sweetheart in a motel room and they fuck each other's brains out. <laughs> and um, and we presume this is a reciprocal arrangement with, with the husband, by the way, um, but we don't know because those are the videos she shares on Make Love Not Porn. You know, she <laughs> shares the videos of her and her high school sweetheart having a high old time. But I think that's a really interesting model for people who may not, you know, want to or be ready for a fully open marriage. But that's mm. a negotiated, you know, version of the hall pass that, that, that maybe other people could benefit from thinking about introducing in, in, into their relationships. So I love the fact that millennials also are demonstrating, you know, more openness to creating different sorts of relationship models. It's so interesting because, as I say, I've been reading this this book about millennials and, and intimacy, and obviously um, I'm going to go ahead and guess that out of her 60 interviews, there, <laughs> there aren't Make Love Not Porn stars in them. But that that is... What you're describing seems to me like a, a actually pretty healthy reaction to the themes that this sociologist was uncovering of young, youngish, you know, tw- mid 20 something a few years ago. So late 20 something now millennials, um, mainly in the Mountain West, but and, and mostly white, to be fair, mostly reasonably middle class or, or better, really kind of. Um, it, it seemed to me as I was reading through it that it was just really fascinating how on the one hand, there's all this talk about gender equity and about social sharing and more transparency and more openness and redesigning, you know, redesigning relationships and redesigning everything about society. And then on the other hand, half-assedly doing that (laughs) and then in the middle of it still being like the women going well i didn't want to be the one to break up with him even though he was not great to me and so i stuck around for a year longer until i could really really double final (laughs) um uh, break up with him and then it was ugly and the other interesting thing that kind of came through that was then the women would frame the experience as he was distant, you know, either unavailable or abusive to me in the relationship, my fault for sticking around so long, that was 
red flag to me, number one. Red flag Ooh. to me, number two is, but I learned something from this. So I'm, I'm a better person as a result of experiencing this terrible thing. Meanwhile, the men are not learning anything from their relationships. They believe, yeah, they only learn as they get older, like some sort of magical passing of time is how they learn. Um, and so I was just reading it going, this is mind blowing because on the one hand, gender equity, on the other hand, doing this weird version of tra- very traditional, but hmm. ne- not healthy, you know, gender roles hmm. in these relationships. Um, um, now, I, I will tell you something else we've learned from Make Love Not Porn in that context, which is, so I designed Make Love Not Porn to be fully diverse and inclusive. And we are. Our members of our Make Love Not Porn stars are male, female, trans, non-binary, LGBTQ, all ages, um, all races, ethnicities. Mm-hmm. But in the 10 years we've been operating, um, what's become clear is that Make Love Not Porn is especially a revelation to men. More men and millennial men and Gen Z men write appreciative emails to us, leave appreciative comments on our videos than anybody else because we are something utterly unique that men will find nowhere else on the internet, which is a safe space where men can be and watch other men being open, emotional, and vulnerable around sex. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't believe the number of men who write to us and say, I just watched my first video Make Love Not Porn and afterwards I cried. I've been saying for years, I wish society understood the opposite of what it thinks is true. Women enjoy sex just as much as men and men are just as romantic as women. Yet neither gender is allowed to openly celebrate either fact and we'd all be a whole lot better off if they were. I picked up a wonderful Twitter exchange last year between two men. The first man had tweeted, and this is obviously a joke, he tweeted, hey guys, I've got this weird fetish. I've got this kink where I want to watch porn where people are honest, loving, loyal, decent, and really like each other. Hit me up with the hottest links, please. <laughs> and, um, and another man replied to him and he said, there's this website called Make Love Not Porn where you can watch real couples fucking and making love. He said, I watched a video where the woman said to her man, I love you while they're making love. He said, sincerely, I cried when I heard that. So we are one of the solutions to toxic masculinity, Barra. And Mm -hmm. again, millennials are especially attuned to that because, again, they're the generation that grew up with that examination in the public discourse. And Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, you know, comments left. um, And and again, you know, I'm judging generationally just by, you know, what's said in these comments, but the number of men who, who say of, of these videos, of the way they see our Make Love Not Porn stars role modeling good sexualizing behavior, they say, you make me want to be a better man in the bedroom and in life. Hmm. This um, kind of doesn't surprise me, given the things that given the things that I've been reading in this book, given and then also all these articles about and you have sort of dueling articles. Do millennials have more or less sex, more or fewer part- sexual partners? There seems to be some data that said that they were having less sex. There's others that say, no, they're having the same amount of sex as everybody else. Just my, my view on that. So, so I, I, um, you know, I said to you earlier that I designed Make Love Not Porn to be the Kinsey of today. Real world, real time, real life human sexual behavior captured aggregated in a way that nobody else is doing in an area that is notoriously research and data free, because, it, you know, as I said earlier, mm-hmm. you know, everything I battle is true for anybody trying to even do academic studies in this area. And in the area where there is the widest possible gap between what people say and what people actually do. 
Mm-hmm. And, by the way, we are all about what people actually do. Um, and so I am regularly called up by journalists going, the latest study's just been released. So, Cindy, you know, millennials are having less sex. You know, what do you think about that? And my first point is always do not believe what you read. Because knowing intimately as I do, the battles that anybody working in this area um, faces, I can tell you that a ton of those research studies and data sets out there are absolutely prone to confirmation bias. You know, this this is the one area of our lives that we are almost fucked up about. You know, the, mm-hmm. um, you know, that saying about we do not see things as they are, we see things as we are, especially applies to sex. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I look at those studies, honestly, um, I take all of them with a very large pinch of salt. Um, and, and by the way, when you drill down, often the sample sizes are not substantive. <laughs> you know, the, 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 yeah. For years, I've been looking for academic partners to mm. do an academic study on the benefits of make love, not porn. And by the way, I, I've had no shortage of people who want to do that. Um, their problem is that they can't get grants. I mean, they absolutely cannot get funding for, for anything to do with sex. Interestingly, um, I had an academic, academic reach out last year from the UK, and we are now planning a study with him and his team because, hallelujah, they already have funding. And their work is focused on how sexual health and happiness drives better public health outcomes. And so watch this space because we are, we are, mm-hmm. you know, working with them. But um, I would just really say to you and our listeners, you, you know, honestly, any study that comes out about sex should be um, really looked at through a very dubious and very cynical lens in that context. I wish that not everyone just assumed that all millennials are the same when it comes to marriage, love, sex, having children, intimacy in any form, because even though a lot of them do not know and respect marriage and love and relationships and commitment, etc., there are some of us that do, myself included. I have been with my spouse for going on 10 years. We share three beautiful children together that we are raising with our beliefs as opposed to the beliefs of other parents from our generation because neither of us grew up seeing what healthy relationships, healthy parenting, any of that were. We were exposed to being unfaithful, throwing the word love around like it was nothing having sex with anybody that would be willing to like so it's been difficult but we have found our own ways so to have people just automatically assume that because we're from that generation we're the same it's pretty disappointing I think that's right. I think one of the things that struck me when I, when I first came to New York, I was in graduate school, mostly surrounded by people a few years younger than me because I had worked between my undergraduate program and going, going to law school. And I was kind of blown away to discover the ways in which people younger than me were thin slicing their definitions of what counted as sex and what didn't. And so, again, qualitative researcher hat on here, my reaction to those surveys is often, well, what do they think sex is? 
Yeah, no, exactly, Farah, exactly. Exactly. And who do they count as a partner? <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, all of yeah. those things matter to yeah, figure out what, yeah. and then you're obviously right about sample sizes and the like, and also sample composition. I, yeah. I think one of the other things that strikes me about, you also have lots of stories about, you know, these kind of where, where sex intimacy and then the internet intersect. So ghosting, hookup culture, dating apps or hookup apps, the revenge porn phenomenon. And then you also have, uh, again, sort of reifying old gender stereotypes of like slut shaming and then a kind of odd inversion of that, which is the whole kind of incel thing of, of men basically looking at blockbuster porn and going, that's what men are supposed to look like in order to be sexually desirable to women. If you don't look like that, you're doomed. And so therefore, women are terrible and blah, 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 you know, all the things that come out from from that sort of line of thinking. And so that gets really focused on. Candidly, I think a lot of those things are reflective of the typical millennials we think about, which are white, suburban, college bound or college educated and affluent <laughs> and yeah, and frankly, yeah, yeah, friends yeah. of the reporter, right? Like yeah. a, a reporter got sent a dick pic. And so now they're going to do a story about dick pics. <laughs> you know, it's the now that I live out in uh, you know Eastern Long Island, I can tell when a New York Times reporter went away for the weekend to Montauk or something because yeah. all of a sudden there's an article about it, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, yeah. um, but it, it is interesting to think about what you're trying to build as an inversion of all of that, of like, instead of this, you know, and, and it, it is complicated having, having bet on your site, um, being a, being a monthly member. Um, it is not what I think of as porn, right? Yeah, and yet yeah, it yeah. is technically that, that is the right word to describe it, but it is not what I think of. Uh, no, uh, no, no, Farah, sorry. It's an indication again of how fucked up we are about sex that people think, Oh, people having sex in video must be porn. No. Uh, this is why I draw the distinction of porn is the Hollywood blockbuster movie because porn is produced, performative, mm. scripted entertainment that is designed mm -hmm. to arouse. Make Love Not Porn is the documentary because we are, you, you know, spontaneously share your video of the sex you have in the real world in the same way you spontaneously share a video of all your friends together on a night out on a whatever. Mm -hmm. um, that is simply, you know, a window onto what really happens in the real world. And right. very importantly, this is why our tagline is we are pro sex, pro porn, pro knowing the difference because we are not an either or. We are a complement and a counterpoint to porn. People like watching movies and people also like watching documentaries. Sometimes they're in the mood for a movie, sometimes in the, in the mood for a documentary. Mm -hmm. But we are not porn. We are creating yeah. a whole new category, social sex. And, and as I say, it's only because our vocabulary is so limited with this gigantic area of universal human existence that uh, I say I've spent 14 years trying to get people to see the nuance in all of this. Mm -hmm. And it's extraordinarily difficult because we're so fucked up about it. Yeah. And, and that, that is, I think, the thing that keeps coming up as I read these articles and, 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 um, and the book is people don't have good definitions. And there is this kind of two sides thing. There's like the, the kind of a public discourse about the importance of healthy relationships and drawing boundaries and gender equity and all of that kind of thing. And then, but people don't know how to enact it. And I think what's interesting about what you're trying to build, I mean, I go back to some of the earlier stories, you know, from when we first met about your encounters with these younger men who thought that sex was supposed to be a particular kind of way and you having to go, 
not necessarily, man. Like, yeah. And also, yeah. that might be yeah. what you're into. It's not what I'm yeah. into. Like, no, no, those exactly. kinds of training. Yeah. But, but, but also, you know, w- what's really important, Farah, I mean, because, you, you know, I find that, you know, people only know about us from the outside, don't really get the uniqueness and the difference of what we do. And the fact that as an utterly unique venture, we have an utterly unique capability. We have the power to change people's sexual attitudes and behavior for the better in a way that nothing else does. And ultimately, our mission at Make Love Not Porn is to end rape culture. Mm. We, and we have 10 years of proof of concept. We end rape culture by doing something incredibly simple that nevertheless nobody else is doing. We end rape culture by showing you how wonderful great consensual communicative sex is in the real world. Our social sex videos role model good sexual values and good sexual behavior. And here's the important part. We make all of that aspirational versus what you see in porn and popular culture. You've undoubtedly heard me over the years exhorting our industry to reinvent aspirational culture. I live my own philosophies. I'm reinventing aspirational culture around sex. And so something else to your point that um, you will only find on Make Love Not Porn is that we celebrate real world emotion, love, intimacy, feelings. And the reason that's so crucial is because all around us in popular culture, movies, TV, streaming, Netflix, we see many creative expressions and narratives of relationships, but we never see the actual sex. On Make Love Not Porn, you see the actual sex, but you also see the relationships. Because in our videos, those two things are indivisible. And when I say that, by the way, I don't just mean that in our, you know, partnered videos, you know, whether it's couples, threesomes, whatever, in those videos, you see healthy relationship dynamics in terms of how they play out during sex. Also in our many solo masturbation videos, you see in those what it's like to have a healthy relation with yourself, mm. with your own body, your own genitals, your own sexuality. But, you know, going back to the point about being able to see healthy relationship dynamics within sex, you will find that nowhere else on the internet because, mm-hmm. you know, with a lot of amateur porn, they're replicating the professionals. They think that's what people want to see. And so, you know, there was a wonderful comment um, on one of our videos by, and this is interesting, by a man who he, he identified in this comment as he, he said, I'm 26 years old. So I guess it's tail end of millennials, upper end mm-hmm. of Gen Z, you know. And he said, I've just started having sex. So, so he undoubtedly is mm-hmm. having sex later than, you know, what one might have thought. And he said, I loved everything about this video. And, and this particular video was a make love porn star couple where the man ejaculated prematurely. It came as a big surprise to both of them. He was very funny, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, and this man commenting said, you know, I love this because he said, I've only just started having sex. And I was always so worried about, is it going all right? Is this the right thing to do? Oh, dear. Should I laugh at that? Should I not laugh at that? And he said, you know, I love the fact, you know, you both laughed. It was so funny. You know, you know, you had a sense of humor about it. He ended up saying, I love this video for so many reasons that are not to do with sex. And that's the point of what we are. Mm hmm. I'm curious also because I know you do a lot of coaching as well. And one of the things that kind of reached up off the pages of one of the things I was reading and slapped me in the face was this repeated comment from young men, millennial men, that um, at this particular stage of their early to mid-20s, they were not really all that interested in having a committed relationship or, or even like not not very committed relationships. It was sort of something 
to do to pass the time. It was sort of the vibe that I got from it. Um, but this belief that they will eventually have a partner, whether, you know, gay or straight, that, that having a spouse in the future will be beneficial to them. And the main reason they cited was their careers. And I think one of the things that it was like my main takeaway from Lean In was just the, 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 she made some kind of comment about one of the most important career decisions a woman can make is who her partner is. And I'm curious about, I know you coach both men and women. How do you see, or do you see, does that come up intimate partner relationships as part of their thinking about their careers or their work or, or their ambitions? Um, do you know it doesn't, you know, and I do want to push back on that, Farah, because bear in mind, you know, I date millennials. And um, now I'm extremely selective about, about whom I date. You know, no matter how casual they should, they have to be a very nice person. And I have fantastic radar for very nice people. So I only date utterly lovely younger men, which is why my so-called casual relationships go on, ironically, a lot longer than most people's so-called committed ones. So I date younger men off and on for periods of two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years. You know, they may meet and date women their own age. They may marry women their own age. Um, we like each other. We stay friends. We'll meet platonically mm-hmm. for drinks or coffee. Every so often those relationships end, marriages end, and they come back. It's very nice. But because of that, I can say to you, first of all, that all of the younger men I've dated very much want to be in love. You know, and this, this is also true of my millennial mm-hmm. uh, men friends, you know, whom I have a lot mm-hmm. as well. I mean, I, you know, I have one millennial friend, um, very dear friend, um, quite well known in the tech world and this would enormously surprise anybody knowing what they think they know of him superficial from outside but he has never ever had casual sex because he has to be in love he has no desire to have casual sex um he wants to fall in love and by the way you know we're very old friends and he's fallen in love inadvisedly repeatedly on another you know and i meet the new girlfriend and it's all wonderful and then you know then i hear but you know someone saying mm-hmm. that, oh, you, know, you know all of that but 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 the key thing is I go back to my point that men are just as romantic as women. You know, again, and because I date, you know, these lovely young men off and on in very long, long periods, I've coached a number of my ex-lovers back to eventually lovers again, but I've coached them through, you know, falling madly in love and then having it all go horribly wrong. And so, and, and so in terms of my professional coaching, I have not had that come up, you know, although both the men and women I coach have tended to have supportive partners so, so that there haven't been issues there. Um, and in, in, in a personal context, you know, with my dates and, and, and with my friends, I haven't observed anybody going, I'm ferociously focused on my career. So I'm pushing off, you know, commitment. Mm-hmm. I've just observed, you know, we all want human connection and, and fundamentally, and, and I am the exception to this because I'm somebody who has absolutely no desire to be in love whatsoever, but fundamentally <laughs> everybody would really like to be in a close, loving relationship. I think it's getting harder and harder, especially if you want to say you're looking for a hookup partner. It's kind of awkward if you're already sourcing from your friend group or associates, like if you really want that anonymity and if you really want to keep things casual, then yeah, the app seems like an obvious, an obvious place to go. I think we're all just trying to figure it out. I think we're trying to reconcile what we saw from our parents, the bad things we saw from our parents, or just the lack of communication about, like, lack of practical knowledge about how relationships should be. So I think most of us have had to learn the hard way. Okay, this is what I don't want. This is not healthy. I I know all my friends have had to go through, most of my friends have had to go through kind of traumatic relationships to a degree before they figured out what 
what they really need and what, what their worth is. Well, and, and this, I think, is interesting because one of my suspicions for a long time about millennials has been that the stories about them are constructed and then it is packaged up as its own kind of brand and then is presented to the people who sit within those those birth years as this is who you are and this is how you should be and you know reading this this book about uh, millennials and intimacy i was just like it's weird that these guys are so consistent about it it's weird that these women are so consistent about it i would expect a lot more variation in these stories as a researcher myself and instead what i found myself wondering is is that what they think they're supposed to say because millennials are ambitious and you know millennials are self-actualized and millennials are this and that you know but, I mean, no, Farrah, i think you're absolutely right you know i think there's absolutely a tendency to tell other people the story and often tell yourself the story that you think you should be telling basically yeah, yeah but I, I, I absolutely concur i mean my tiny team at make love not porn you know i have four employees two of them are millennials two of them are gen z and honestly i mean you know the millennials i mean you could not find anybody harder working, more dedicated, more committed, more going over and above the call of duty. I mean, I'm fortunate to have an absolutely spectacular team on my business, but mm-hmm. you know, they refute every claim about millennials in the workplace. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean that, that's obviously teaching me to sample size, but and, and again, you know our industry. We like to package these constructs. You know, because mm-hmm. um, it makes clients feel good when we go, okay, well, you know, now we can define, who we can, et cetera. And honestly, it, it just, it is not that simple and it's not that straightforward. Yeah. It, I mean, nothing ever is. And and I think the other thing that's interesting about that narrative and, and talking to my, my friend Danita about this is, you know, she and I were in a conversation where she sort of said, like, as a woman of color, I think one of the things about the millennial narrative, and she's not a millennial either, she's about my age, but, you know, she was sort of saying, you know, it feels very individualistic, the narrative. It feels very, and, and this has been my take on all these early texts about millennials is this idea that like they're all on a path to realizing their individual potential as workers and citizens, and then eventually as households. And we're very excited about that. Could be the next greatest generation. Um, on the other hand, something bad happens. They're all going to band together and rise up and overthrow whatever the status quo is. And that is very interesting because it feels like when we're thinking about the good stuff, we're thinking about the white, the affluent, the suburban, the college educated, when we're thinking about the part where they gain solidarity and rise up to overthrow the existing structures, that now now that cohort is multicultural, it's yeah. multiple classes, yeah. it's a, a, a much bigger array of identities than when we're thinking about all the upside. And the branding contribution to that, obviously, is like, we like affluent consumers. We like people with money to spend. So we focus on them at the expense of everybody else. And they feel quite left out, I think, of, of that narrative. And they are. <laughs> I can say, having done now seven, eight episodes of this and all the research to go with it, they're absolutely left out of it. I know that your site is extremely diverse, having looked through it. Do you see any differences or are there more similarities than differences across gender identities or across ethnicities? You have to bear in mind that, you know, our members now make love at porn cells are self-selecting. Mm-hmm. You know, what, what I have done is I've built a community around shared sexual values. Right. So, so everybody is there because they want to see more open, healthy attitudes towards sex. You know, that that's the unifying. Bond. Right. Um, and so, 
Around that, it's hard to discern specific differences mm-hmm. because we have a shared shared understanding and a shared goal and a shared belief. Right. You know, you know I completely agree with what you said, and I would really encourage people to, you know, if, if they want to address millennials through marketing or in whatever capacity, um, I encourage people to conduct um, thought experiments. And what I mean by that is, I began doing this myself many years ago. Um, I had a meeting with a wonderful Susan Line of Built by Girls Ventures um, when she was, her office was in the AOL building um, downtown here in New York. And so I turned up, um, I'm horribly prompt, so I turned up way too early for the meeting and the receptionist said, you know, take a seat um, in reception and Susan's assistant will be out to get you into your course. And the way the AOL building um, was designed, um, actually, you know, um, quite cleverly, was that reception was kind of, at the heart of the traffic through flow um, on, on the main floor. And so I, I took a seat on the couch where I could see people coming towards me, crisscrossing the lobby, you know, going to the coffee bar, etc. And so I sat there waiting for Susan Lyons' assistant. And it gradually dawned on me that I was sitting there expecting every woman who walked towards me to be Susan Lyons' assistant. So I'm okay, Cindy, um, here's what I'm going to do. You are going to look at every man crossing this reception and assume that he is Susan Lyons' assistant. And you're going to look at every woman and assume that she is a senior VP of something. And mm-hmm. so I did that. You know, I, I literally made myself watch the people as men came towards me thinking, oh, this is Susan Lyons' assistant. Now, in fact, Susan Lyons' assistant was a woman, <laughs> yeah, as they saw not. Yeah. But, but, you know, um, that is an approach I've adopted ever since to challenge my own preconceived notions. Mm. And so I remember um, a few years ago, you know, pre the pandemic, I had a meeting in London at a very large ad agency. And I went to reception and they said, and, and I've been corresponding with the team, but I didn't actually know anybody on the team. I didn't know who they were. So I've been corresponding with them and, and the receptionist said, you know, take a seat in reception and, you know, so-and-so from the team will be down to collect you. So I sat at reception. I thought, right, I'm expecting to be collected by a black woman. And as you know, Farah, that is extraordinarily rare in our industry. Mm-hmm. I went, you know, I'm going to sit in reception. I'm going to expect that, you know, whoever comes to get me is going to be a black woman. Lo and behold, she was. Yeah. <laughs> it was fantastic. You know, you know, I, didn't, I didn't know that at all. Yeah. You know. So to your point, I would encourage people, when you think about a millennial, think about a millennial black woman. Mm-hmm. Think about a millennial Latinx man. You know, think about mm-hmm. a millennial Asian American person. You know, mm-hmm. consciously, you know, do a thought experiment and just put in your head a different visual construct of millennial to the one that, to your point, Farah, undoubtedly you've been operating up to this point. Yeah, absolutely. I know we're running out of time. Where where should people go to find things that you are working on? So obviously, listeners, if you enjoy this conversation, please support me and my startup. Join us at makelovenotporn.tv. Subscribe. It starts at $10 a month. It's very affordable. Um, consider becoming a Make Love Not Porn star. Um, you can find me and Make Love Not Porn on Twitter and Instagram, at Cindy Gallup, at Make Love Not Porn. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook. We have a TikTok. It's Make Love Not Corn because, you know, problems. So please go to TikTok, find Make Love Not, Not Corn, which will be difficult because we appear to have been shadow banned, but do your best and follow us there as many can. And um, I will just give a um, plug for my newest venture because 
in the 14 years that every day I get a mailbox from Make Love Not Porn, and inevitably over the years, that mailbox has frequently featured requests for sex advice because people have had nowhere else to go, especially in the early years, by the way, when there really were, was nowhere else to go. And over the years, no matter how stressed, I've always responded to those emails. Because when, as happened a few years ago, a teenage boy writes to me and says, I'm having sex with my girlfriend. Please tell me how to make love, not porn. I really want to know. And I know my parents sure as hell won't tell me. You know, you bet I write back at length. <laughs> and and he replied and he said his girlfriend went, where do you learn that? <laughs> so, so, so I have started a sub stack, Dear Cindy, where you can ask me anything. You can ask me sex advice. You know, I also started because I get asked a ton of things on social media that I don't have time to reply to. You know, where do you get that outfit? How do you make a perfect martini? You know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So please go to Dear Cindy on Substack. Sign up. Um, you can sign up for free. Please do also, though, take out a paid subscription because I'm doing this to support Make Love Not Porn. So that's where, where, where the proceeds go. And please do send in your questions because I'm hugely enjoying answering the ones that um, I'm getting so far. That's so cool. I I did see that you had launched that and um, I will go and sign up today. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. This is this is amazing. And I I love anything that kind of subverts all these silly stories that froth out there about what millennials are like, because it's never really the story. So thanks for taking the time. It's been a pleasure. In the Demo is produced by Farah Bostic and Adam Pierno with support from The Difference Engine and edited by Alison Preisinger and Amp Studio. Music by Omega Man under the Creative Commons license. Go to inthedemopodcast.com for behind-the-scenes research and supporting information. Please rate and review the show. Someone told us that helps.